Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Well, welcome to Masterclass Theology. I am Big Rev. And I'm Professor D. We have a special treat today. We're starting this brand new series in Isaiah, and we are going to have a blast with this. This is our this is our great fall launch. And I want to begin by introducing a third member of the Masterclass Theology crew. This is John, otherwise known as Crockpot. John, say a couple words and welcome. Hello, friends. Thank you for having me. Isn't that a beautiful voice? It's reminding me, it's, it's, I, I just feel so great talking after you do, John. So, so John's a great pleasure to, be, to have you journey with us, my friend. Let me open us up with a word of prayer, and then we will journey forth in our time in Isaiah. God, thank you for your text. We thank you for the scripture that is, has not been written to us, but preserved for us. We, though, though countless generations later, are able to be nourished and challenged by these words. And we were able to see your hand at work in human history and what you expect of us, God. And we were able to find our hope in you. And we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So like we, we usually do with, with the, the book. So th- this time we are going to do something a bit different. But we're going to start. Professor D, would you get us started here? Um, actually, you know what? Before that, pardon me. Let me give just a brief introduction and what, what we're going to do. Usually the Masterclass Theology. All of you listeners out there who've been enjoying uh, our episodes, you know that our strength is expository. We go books of the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and we, we, we extract all the juicy goodness out of the word. What we're going to do in these next 10 weeks, we're going to take the whole book of Isaiah, and we're going to trace a theme throughout the whole book. So 10 sessions, and the theme that we landed on is hope. And our world right now is divided. It's very tribalistic. And we're dealing with all this, this nonsense of, of, of culture and politics and divisions. And, and our culture loves to put us in boxes and get us angry at each other. And we as a church are called to be different. And we as the church have been given something profound. And that profoundness is hope. And so to trace the, the journey of hope throughout Isaiah in 10 sessions. So we will be taking each, each session, a chapter of Isaiah, and we'll be unpacking it but we'll be doing the theme of hope. All right, so that's our journey for these next 10 weeks. So we go now as an introduction to, usually what we do is we start a new book, we introduce the book, and so we're going to have Professor D. Professor D, give us, if you would, the importance of the book of Isaiah. Well, Isaiah is the, you know, is really the clearest picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. It is the book that speaks the most directly to both Jesus's first and second coming. Uh, his birth, his death, his earthly reign. It's all here in Isaiah. It is the most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament, especially because of Jesus. I mean, and, and especially all the prophecies that happened during the first coming, which gives us the confidence in believing the literal fulfillment of the prophecies for the second coming. Awesome. And make uh, Isaiah is also a unique book. What is unique about Isaiah? Oh, um, that's a good question, Joel. Isaiah has quite quite a few unique features. Uh, for one thing, just the number of years it took to compose it. It took over fifty years to 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 actually write it. I mean, Moses wrote four books in 
in, in his wilderness wanderings, you know, um, you know, uh, whereas Ezekiel and Jeremiah use a, a total of uh, 1,500 different words in their respective books, Isaiah uses well over 2,000 words. Uh, the term mighty one of Israel is almost exclusively found in Isaiah. Uh, 26 out of the 32 times it comes out in the Old Testament, it's in the book of Isaiah. Um, uh, and then there's the prophecy, the only prophecy in the Old Testament regarding the virgin birth, it's right here in Isaiah. Uh, of, you know, the, the naming of Cyrus, the only Gentile, you want to talk about unique, the only Gentile called God's anointed. Mm. And, and on top of that, you know, that which is kind of a big deal, considering that the dude was actually a pagan king, he was a, maybe a good pagan king, but nonetheless a pagan king. Um, you know, um, and I have, again, it's the clearest picture of Jesus, the Messiah, not, not just as the once and for all king from the line of, of David, as well as uh, uh, the line from the tribe of Judah, but also the Messiah being that suffering servant, uh, definitely in the Old Testament, and, and really quite possibly in the whole Bible, Isaiah probably is the most comprehensive book on end times. I mean, it gives revelation to run for its money. I appreciate that. That's a great introduction, my friend. And yeah, and, and one of the blessings of these 10 weeks is, is for those of you who are going to be following us along these, these 10 sessions, we, we, we found as we found these verses that, that they give us hope, they're also very uh, Christ-centered verses, that, ones that point to the, the hope we have in Jesus. And that's why they present great hopeful realities. So we're going to be tracing wonderful, wonderful themes. So I would imagine for some of you who are wondering where we're going to be at in Isaiah, to limit it to 10, it was, it was a challenge, but I bet you're going to be pleasantly surprised at some of the places we're going to go. and you, You'll be pleased at where we land, oh, listener. All right, so we're going to be in verses 1 to 20 of chapter 1. I'm just going to begin with just reading verse 1. And verse 1 is kind of a historical verse, and then we're going to ask John to, to give us some historical backdrop here. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of judah so crockpot will you give us our historical backdrop of this book i'd be happy to but first i just have to thank you for teaching me something new today big rev i didn't know it was pronounced amos is that how you said that isaiah the son of amos here i've been saying amos my whole life what a fool i've been okay always time to learn amen so isaiah's career, I guess we can call it as a prophet, takes place something like 750 to 740 BC to 680 BC. It spans four uh, kingships or administrations, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, both all, all four mentioned in verse one here. So as some of you may know, by this point in Israel's history, Israel and Judah have been two divided kingdoms for about 200 years now. Both uh, over the course of their history will fail spiritually, fall into idol worship, and they, well, they just don't live up to God's moral standards. They, they reject him. Israel is further down this path of spiritual decline than Judah is. So this is, this is, this is the world that uh, Isaiah is living in, and the, the country that he's prophesying to. Specifically, the Judah, the state that it's in when he's there, 
it it looks faithful on the surface, the way that they're doing their worship and 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 their service to God, but their hearts aren't sincere. And God, God is God. God knows that. That's why uh, it, it'll talk about in in chapter one that he's basically he's sick of their righteous deeds. They're meaningless to him. We'll see that this this just uh, just bristling indictment of Judah in uh, verses 11 to 15 here. So one of the themes of this book and the whole Bible is God is after the heart. And that's really what Isaiah is going to get at here. Also during Isaiah's years prophesying, Judah is being swayed by Israel and the nations surrounding it by uh, the poor choices they're making. They're looking and seeing these countries succeeding through military strength and political strength and financial strength. And they're all wanting and Judah's looking at that, envying that, wanting to go the way that they're going, saying, maybe we need alliances with nations like this. And along with those alliances usually comes worshiping their gods too. And Isaiah says, nope, you only need one God, the Holy One of Israel. Uh, by the way, if you're wondering where you can read more about Isaiah in the Bible, you can find his, his you can find him mentioned along with these kings that he serves that will, that will be mentioned in this book. It's in, uh, in 2 Kings 15 to 20, and then fleshed out, I think, in a little more detail in 2 Chronicles chapters, roughly 26 to 31. That's really helpful, John. And John, John, you mentioned something that I think would be really helpful for our listeners. You used words like Judah, and then you used the word Israel. Is there a difference here between Judah and Israel in this time period? Great question. So you may remember from earlier in the Bible, Israel is one nation unified to begin with. They are divided by, by God's design. They're divided into these 12 tribes. Um, going back to Genesis, Judah is one of the original sons of Jacob or Israel, and he's his own tribe. They get their own uh, plot of land, their own section of the, the entire 12 tribes that make up Israel. So one of those tribes is Judah. Uh, but starting with... Um, Let's see, after the kingship of Saul and David, then Solomon, um, Judah split off from the nation of Israel, or maybe better to say that Israel split off from, from Judah. They became their kind of their own country. Yeah, as, so, uh, the, so, so what I heard you saying there when you were sharing that was Israel was working against Judah earlier on in your historical uh, reminder for us. And I, yeah, I, th I think that's just really good for our, our listeners to know at this point in history that We've got these northern ten tribes that they are the ones that you'll find in a later prophets called Ephraim. They're, they're they're referred to as Israel. Then you've got Judah, and so these are the two main. And so you'll you'll see in the Kings and Chronicles two sets of kings. So certain king, king of Israel or king of Judah. So right away in Isaiah one, Isaiah is letting us know Judah and Jerusalem, which is the capital down there. So they they're in the south. So this is now. Uh, this is now the nation of Judah, not the nation of Israel. Israel was the rest of them. So I appreciate that, that great historical backdrop there, John. Uh, all right. So we, and, and I, just for your question that you, you tossed one at me as well, I just quickly, while you were talking, I looked up the Hebrew and it is a long O, but, but our English Bibles get the Z wrong. It has an end like a, like, uh, the, like the word oats, like oats and honey, like it's oats, like, oh, it's a amots. Yeah. So amots. It's, it, it is a long O because there's a there's a there's a there's a consonant in there that reminds us of a long O, but it does have the T S kind of thing or T almost like a T Z. 
And so, it, yeah, it's, it's funny. All right, the, the things you learn in Masterclass Theology. Okay, we continue now with, we kind of have two charges against Judah, two graphic illustrations, two responses to Judah's problem, and two paths that result. That's kind of how tonight goes. So we start with two charges against Judah, and I'm going to read verses two to four. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Oh, my goodness, Professor D, would you walk us through these verses? What seems to be the two main issues with, with, with Judah here? All right. Well, the obvious thing is that, you know, here is that there is there is a turning away from God. But how so specifically? Well, for starters, in verse two, it says that they are his children whom he has reared and brought up, but now have rebelled against him. So Israel and, and when I mean when, when I say Israel, I mean that that's basically uh, Judah was the only country that Israel, the country was the only country in Earth's history that was directly founded by God. Um, and, and I think that that's something that's very important for why God has a very special connection with Israel and Judah, you know, because they, they, it was founded by God, you know, God's promises to Abraham about forming a nation, uh, no other nation, not even the U.S., which comes close in the fact that it had Christianity in its, in its formation, can, can say that they were put together by God. So, so what, what's going on here is that you know, they, they have strayed from God's governance and his instructions. Uh, so, so the first thing they did wrong was reject God, the Holy One of Israel. And, and that's where the, the downward spirals be, begins for, for, for Israel and Judah and, and all of us. Um, like, just like it says in Romans 1.21. Secondly, once God is rejected, anything goes. That means that there is no detriment to sin. There is no standard to truth. Uh, no righteous, there's no righteousness. Uh, in verse four, it says that they are weighed down by iniquity, which is just a fancy word for sin. He calls them offspring of, of evildoers, in essence, saying that they are no longer acting like his children, completely corrupt. Um, and so rejecting God leads to, to the downward spiral of sin. So you reject God and you're going to replace it with something else. And it, and it, and it isn't going to be good. They also seem kind of ignorant, don't they? He, 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 he contrasts them with an ox. Mm. I mean, the, the, uh, the ox knows something they don't even know. The donkey knows something. So it's kind of a, we think of the Balaam story where the donkey knew, knew more of the reality than Balaam did. Well, here the ox and the donkey know what's going on, but they don't know what's going on. So like they're worse than their beasts of burden here. So Isaiah's coming after them. Well, thank you, Professor D. Two basic charges against, against, against Judah. And so we continue now in verses five to eight with, Two graphic illustrations, and you know, John, you get the prize here. These are these are these are memorable. Okay, so verse five, six, seven, and eight. Here we go. Why will you why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Oh, my goodness. 
John, if you'd please walk us through these illustrations and how do they picture the nation's spiritual condition? Sure, sure. So something I meant to mention in my historical backdrop was the, uh, the rise of Assyria at this time. Assyria is growing more and more powerful over the course of these four administrations that Isaiah is serving under. So by this point, uh, Judah has already suffered great loss and damage at the hands of the Assyrians, hence the graphic negative language here. But it's not because their government is weaker or their army is smaller than Assyria's, it's because of their insincere faith. Their hearts and their idea of justice don't match their kind of selective acts of obedience. You know, these sacrifices and ritual offerings and things that they're doing where the heart doesn't really line up with what they're doing with their works. So when Isaiah talks about Judah as like a broken, beaten body or a country that's ravaged by fire and foreign conquerors, uh, it's really just, it's a testament to their spiritual state, their disobedience and their insincere faith have left them just helpless and desolate and destitute and broken and all these things. And this is the natural state of anyone who has not lived in the presence of God. And I just think um, I'm particularly drawn to the, the imagery here of, of, this, of this body that's sick and broken and beaten. Um, I'll, I'll leave it to a better mind than me to, to determine whether this is like strictly speaking prophecy about Jesus. But I was just thinking when I was reading this, you know, have you ever wondered what the sin of an entire nation looks like? If it had a physical form, it would be, it would look like this body that Isaiah is describing here. It's like beaten to a pulp and afflicted with like the worst possible mental and emotional sicknesses. It's wretched and wounded and sick, but it's receiving no treatment for all of its ailments. So, yeah, I'm not sure if this is <laughs> prophetic, but it definitely reminds me of Jesus. And I think that's for a reason. Um, you know, what does the sin of a nation look like? Well, it looks like this body. And that's exactly what is, what is the sin of the whole world look like? It looks like that body of Jesus scourged and beaten beyond recognition and nailed to a cross. I like how you brought up the, the geopolitical issue going on, the, the Assyrians. And next, and, and after the Assyrians is going to be Babylon. But if, if, if for those of you who, who have a hard time picturing a map, I'll present you the state of Illinois right now. So picture the picture a map of the state of Illinois. Think of Assyria, and I don't mean this on purpose, I guess, but think of Assyria where Chicago is. Okay. And think of the other geopolitical prize of the area. The only real rival in that area that Assyria probably had, and definitely the one that had the most resources would be Egypt. So think of, if you can picture on a map of Illinois, Assyria being up where Chicago is, picture Egypt down there where maybe St. Louis is. And so the rest of Illinois in between, that's what we're dealing with here. You've got the nation of, of Israel and Judah. And so it's like flyover country with the Mediterranean Sea to the left, okay, and a desert to the right. And they have some resources of their own. So Assyria probably viewed Judah as they were some, some good pickings, and they were not only flyover country, but they were a rich flyover country that they wanted to get to. And, and so, yeah, so this is a, a terrible time in history where Israel would ally with other nations to go against Judah. And you know, it's just this terrible God's people attacking God's people. But yeah, what, what, a, what, what, an, what a interesting illustrations here. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate where you went with that. That's, there's, you were, you're emotionally invested in these illustrations, which meant that Isaiah did his job. The Holy Spirit did his job. So, so we have two charges against Judah. 
we have two graphic illustrations and then just kind of a pause verse, verse nine. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So and I'll take this one. This is on describing God's sovereignty, where the, 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 the original readers of, of this or listeners of this, they would immediately understand Sodom and Gomorrah, the two of the most famous cities. In fact, you may have non-Christian or non-church friends. Even today, you mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going to know what's going on. Oh, yeah, I've heard about them. Fire and brimstone and all that. Yeah. Well, Isaiah gives the nation here a, a wonderful image. If God had not left us a few survivors, we were all going to be crispy critters because Sodom and Gomorrah, they were crispy critters. And so we get this idea that, that, that God, remember when, when Elijah was running away from King Jezebel, he goes and hides and, uh, he's, and, and, he, and he's depressed and, and God speaks to him in a whisper and he's thinking all is lost. And God reminds Elijah, hey, I still have a remnant. There are still so many people who have not bent the knee to Baal. And we get this idea in chapter one of Isaiah. There's hope right here because God preserved a remnant. And that is a massive thing. Otherwise, if God had not sovereignly chosen what God chose, they would all be dead. The nation would be destroyed. Isaiah is saying we'd have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. We'd have been rubble with brimstone in it. But God left us survivors. God intentionally has a plan. There's hope on the horizon. We see that in verse 9. All right, we continue. 10 to 17, and we're going to start with 10 to 15, and these are two responses to Judah's problem. So we, we like this about Isaiah 1. There's hope here because God, the grand jury doesn't just give indictments. There's now responses, and there's going to be a good response and a bad response. And so, in fact, reverse order there. So let's start with the bad response. Let me read 10 to 15. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Okay, he links them right away. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you the trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wow. That was like a God mic drop right there. So, Mick, uh, that was a big... That was a pretty powerful chunk there. Please help us understand that this of the two responses, I, I think it's safe to say this is the wrong response. So help us understand this wrong response, please. Well, first I have to address, uh, you know, it's been a while since I heard Crispy Critters on these uh, broadcasts. So there you go. Uh, properly, pro rightly so though. Um, basically the whole point here is that the nation had, had missed the point of the sacrifices. They, they were not coming to God in, in sincere repentance. They, they were just going through ritualistic motions, lip service, if you will. They're just checking off boxes. It, it's, it's like uh, like Hebrews 10, one says, it reminds us that the point of the sacrifices was to draw us near to God. Uh, Hebrews 10, four says that the blood never did the forgiving of sin, you know, because again, it, it is, it is God's grace. 
and and it is the faith of the people and and repentance of the people turning to God. So so that was clearly not happening, or else God wouldn't have had to call them out here like like He does. Yeah, can, can, Mick, can you see can you see implicit in the sacrificial system a way for man to maybe try to manipulate God using the religious? Like if I do the outward things, it doesn't matter how I am on the inside because I'm doing the outward things. Yeah, you know, that that's kind of like the great temptation always, isn't it? To try to leverage God. And, you know, even good Christians sometimes fall into that trap. You know, God, I'm faithful. Why'd you let this happen? Or, or why don't you do this? You know, and even when, when you're doing it right, you we, we have that tendency to still want to manipulate God. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's, he's, he's getting to the heart of the matter here. It's not just the outside. There's got to be something about the inside of the worshiper. So yeah. we're not at all surprised in Deuteronomy 6 when we're told, love the Lord with all your heart. Not, not love the Lord with all your sacrifice. There's, right. there's, there's something here about the inside you that needs. So this is a great condemnation upon the nation because this is their big problem. This, is, this goes back to the rebellion and their ignorance. They're worse than the ox or the donkey. They're not getting it. And this is like a hello McFly moment for Israel here. So yeah, this, this is cool. This was the wrong response. But Isaiah, being a great preacher here, gives a good response. So we get the wrong response. Now we're going to get the right response. And, and John's going to help us with this one. So this would be verses 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So, John, what describes the second response that Isaiah gives, this time the right one? Yeah, so the correct response to God that Isaiah is uh, trying to elicit out of his listeners, it's characterized by, number one, this purging of sin and evil, this deep cleansing that they need to, need to do of their hearts. Um, we know that, uh, obviously, for, you know, the Jews have this long history of uh, these ritual purification, things that they're supposed to do, because God is a holy God who can't tolerate being around unclean or unholy people. He cares about it. It's this, this, you know, cleanness is important to him. But again, it's, it's a cleanness of the heart that he's after, you know. Um, it's, it's the, when we, when we read about, you know, cleanness and purity in the Bible, it's always, it's always at heart about holiness, sinlessness. God is, they, they are to have nothing to do with sin. They need to get rid of it. But more, more than just getting rid of sin and cleansing themselves, they need to uh, do good. That's, that's what verse 17 is. I think it's, we can pretty much close the Bible there. We just learn to do good, you know, if it were only so simple. So like, what is, what is doing good um, as God, or uh, uh, yeah, as he's describing it here? Well, he's, He's getting after justice, his perfect vision for justice, setting things right, like where there's been oppression, especially for, and then he names these two groups, the fatherless and the widows, you know, plead their cause, bring justice to them. This is something that you see going back as early as Deuteronomy 10. God cares, especially for these two groups of people. They're like the, the poster children, if you will, for, uh, for justice, the the fatherless and the widow, if those are being cared for, that's what true justice looks like. They're, they're emblematic of the 
most vulnerable people in society. And that's who God cares about. That's what will distinguish Israel is, you know, if you are, if you have a system, if you have laws in place, and if you are, if you are um, administrating and leading and doing things that will actually care for those people. And, and by the way, I think it's, it's no, nothing has changed. Um, you know, you look at the, the hardest hit places in the world with, with, uh, with poverty and hardship and things like who are, who are, who are the people who suffer the most in places like that? Often it's kids without dads and moms without husbands, whether because they're widows or, or for other reasons, it destroys families and creates so much hurt and damage. God says justice means carry, caring for them. And we need to care about what God cares about. And, and I think, I think James would also agree. Yes. I think so. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was, I was right there with you, Joel, with James saying the same thing. And I think one of the key things with those two groups of people, especially orphans and widows, is that when you do good to other people, there's always a possibility that they can repay you back. The idea of an orphan and a widow is that if you do good for them, there, there, there can be really no ulterior motive because mm. you're never going to get repaid by, by either of these groups, you know, and it's kind of like God, like, Hey, you want, you want to make sure that you're doing the right thing for the right reason here, help these people. Cause these are the people that, that will not be able to repay it. That's good. This is good stuff. And we, we have, you know, the, Isaiah brings two charges against Judah he illustrates them with two graphic illustrations. There's, there's two responses to their problem. They can either do one or the other. And now there's two paths that result. And this is verses 18 to 20. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good fruit, of the, the good of the land, excuse me. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Interesting there, a little, little connection with uh, almost like a Revelation 19, 11 to 21, the rider on the white horse and the word of God. It's here he is, this, this sword coming out of his mouth kind of, but I digress. Uh, Professor D got, got me connected with Revelation here in his, in his intro. All right, so we got two paths here and one of them, this is probably not the best translation. It's probably not strong enough. The word for let us reason together, it is, it is a rare word in the Old Testament. It's also linked to the word for umpire. If you can imagine someone who is like an arbitrator. So this isn't just sitting there, oh, let's just, let's just, I'll say my thing and you say your thing. No, this is an arguing of sort. This is a, you come at God with your best and let's see if, if that will work. And so if what you can come to God with is good enough, then you know what, it's going to work. But Otherwise, God's got a path. And so the first path is I'm going to um, be humble and I'm going to submit myself to God's plan and I'm going to uh, maintain the proper attitude and I'm going to follow that previous path that talked about treating others the way they should be treated and caring for those. Jesus would talk about this, like what's stored in the heart comes out. And so what, it's, it, what, what man says and does is what comes out of his heart. So the inner person kind of showing up in the outer person. So that, that first response is a humble, repentant response that's going to trust God, that's going to take God at his word, that is going to submit to him. That's the first response. The second response is refusing to and being like the stubborn ox and the stubborn donkey. In fact, worse than that, because they at least have an excuse. They're an ox or a donkey. You don't have an excuse, Judah. So the second path is, if you refuse and rebel, 
then hardship's going to come. It's going to be the sword, and yeah, and it's not going to be good. So you got two basic paths here. One has hope because it's centered in God and when doing what God says and being obedient, finally, Judah. And the other one is, well, the path of the self. I might call this, I'm going to follow the Joel path of the Jesus path. And when I'm following the Joel path, nothing good comes of that path. I will never on my own do good. On my own, I will never do good on that path. I am, as Ephesians 2 says, I am dead in my sins. I have no hope at all on the Joel path. When God brings me onto the Jesus path, that's a different thing. So it's like, what path do you choose in here? The path that pursues the self or the path that unapologetically and humbly pursues God. That's really what it comes down to. And with that said, Professor D, we'd like to do closing thoughts of, of our chapters. We're going to do something a bit different tonight. Professor D is going to give us closing thoughts about God, how God is presented in, in Isaiah chapter one. All right. Well, here goes. You know, so one of the things is that as Isaiah opens up this book, he starts it off with, with very strong and, and basically harsh language. I mean, he calls Israel a sinful nation, iniquitous people, evildoers, corrupt. And the last time I checked, these were not compliments nor terms of endearment. These are serious charges. It's very heavy-handed on the part of God. And it, and it goes on like that for the next 13 verses. And yet, and this is a beautiful thing about God, and yet you can see that God is, is open to something here. And, and he wants his children. You notice that fatherly, you know, he still calls them children in, in, in the mire of all this. You know, he wants his children to be reconciled. He tells them, wash yourselves, stop doing evil, learn to do good, seek justice. In short, repent. God wants us as his children to own our sin and repent. God is telling us that there is always hope and repentance. Hope, repentance. I mean, these two things go hand in hand. Verse 18, as you brought up earlier, this sets up the hope. You know, the fact that there's even a remnant. There's always a remnant because this tells you about God not only being a God of hope, but a God who's faithful. So that means that he, he, he's going to deliver on this hope. You know, uh, this hope that, 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 he, that he's going to develop throughout the rest of this book. And, and I'll close with this. The fact that this book is filled with hope tells us a lot about the heart of God towards his children. Amen. Well, John, would you give us some closing thoughts about the nation here? So we're speaking of, of Isaiah was talking to Judah. What, what, what are our closing thoughts here about the ones receiving this message? Sure, sure. So in Isaiah 1, it's these nations that are surrounding Judah which are causing its destruction. But here, as is usually the case, it's not just their fault. It, Judah, um, Judah and Israel, you know, have been looking at these nations and they're like, oh, we like what we see, you know, money, power, and the gods they worship that seem to get them what they want. Not to mention they have fewer rules. Um, and God, what God does is he, he, quote, he gives them over. It's a phrase that you, that you see repeatedly in Old Testament. You have Judah and Israel lusting after these other nations and what they're doing. And God gives them over to those nations, essentially saying, you want to be like them? Okay, be like them. To the extent that those nations come and they conquer, they take over Israel and Judah. So the non-Israel nations and the non-Judah nations in Isaiah 1, they, in that sense, they seem to be the bad guys. They're like the, 
the source of temptation and destruction. And if you want an example of a really bad group of non-Israelite people in the Bible, the classic example is Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 19, God destroys them because of their just complete depravity and their wickedness. And Isaiah tells the people of Judah, verse 9, 1, 9, it, you know, we've had it bad, but at least you aren't as bad off as them. They were completely destroyed. Except, he goes on in verse 10 to say, in a way, you are. I'm talking to you, rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah. You, you know what God hates? All these insincere acts of worship and service that you've been doing. This wishy-washy kind of faith that they're practicing, these, the leaders of Judah and the temple and whatnot, not really practicing what they preach, you know, paying lip service, like you said, Professor D. These leaders of Judah are no better than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's how, and that's how Isaiah addresses them. They're God's chosen people. And yet, apart from him, they're no better off than those, these outsiders, these outside nations who have no concept even of who God is. Um, they, yeah, they need their hearts. People of Judah need their hearts transformed you know, and cleaned just as desperately uh, as those people. And that still goes for Jew and Gentile today. I mean, we can talk about how God fulfills his promises that are unique to Israel in the age to come. <laughs> that's, a, that's a different conversation. But I think that when it comes to the need for redemption, you know, this utter transformation of the heart, that we're all in the same boat. Yeah. You know, Jesus picked up on something like that in Matthew 11. He was speaking to uh, Capernaum, and he said, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. So mm -hmm. this idea of Sodom being the worst of the worst, but now Israel you're, or Judah, you're just like Sodom. In fact, then they were at least pagans. It's like, you know God, so what is your problem? I mean, you're worse than them in, in, to a degree, the worst right. of the worst. And yeah, this, this chapter one, Isaiah just, he just holds no punches here. He is just, he is delivering God's message. And, and so we, we come to the, just the, the final closing word here, just on hope. And we're going to try, if we can, to end all of our sessions with hope to, as a reminder of where we see hope in our text. And in a couple of a couple points tonight, in verse nine, we see God's sovereignty. And I, I just love that what was brought out by Professor D and by Crockpot, how you guys just re reminded us that if God didn't choose what he chose, they never would have made it. Any one of us has hope because God gives grace to the undeserving. And because God gives grace to the undeserving, because if you think about it, if we got what we deserve, the wages of sin truly is death, each one of us would be six feet under the ground. But instead, God has chosen to give grace. And so the, the elect remnant receives grace. And here we have that in our day in Christ, the ones that God has chosen, receive that same grace. There's hope there. Now my sins don't have to be the final chapter of my book. I have hope there because God makes that hope possible. And then God lands the plane with the great two paths. You're either going to find that hope in yourself, which is gonna lead, isn't going to lead to hope at all. If you're going to be on the selfish path, you'll never, and from a Christian standpoint, we're not surprised at all that Jesus says to follow him, you got to deny the self. Because if you're on that selfish path, you'll never get to taste that hope because your hope will be centered in you. Your hope is either centered in you or centered in God. And if we take Isaiah 1 at face value, if your hope is centered in you, your destiny is Sodom and Gomorrah. If your hope is centered in God, 
your hope now leads to your scarlet sins becoming white as snow. We've got this great foreshadowing. Mm, great foreshadowing. That's good, Joel. This has been a great chat. This has been a wonderful opportunity to dig into God's word. This is Masterclass Theology. I'm so thankful for this evening. As always, I'm Big Rev. And I'm still Professor D. And I am Crockpot. God bless. Amen. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.